Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another incredible guest. We have with us Nayan, who is the co-founder of Avigen Health. And what's cool about Nayan is he's got a clinical background, he's got a background in pharma, and more than a decade of experience in digital health. So it's an absolute pleasure having you on the show today, Nayan. How are you? I'm very good, Abdullah, and thank you for having me on the show. It's a great opportunity also for us to speak about what we have been doing and where the sector is going. No, definitely. Mm-hmm. So you've been in digital health and pharma for many years, but we like to take the, the story all the way back to the very beginning. So a young Nayan, uh, tell us about your, your motivations to kind of study medicine um, and then please kind of bring us to present day with the work, incredible work you're doing at Avigen. Mm-hmm. Happy to. So I, I went into medicine because I think in India, when I was growing up, there were only two careers that one could do, either be an engineer or be a <laughs> medic. So not too many options, unlike today. Um, but I was more interested on the healthcare side. So instead of doing engineering, I went into went into medicine. And to a certain extent, I think my work in digital health probably starts with my experience when I was a when I was an intern. So here you would call it a foundation foundation year. And uh, a lot of the times when I would work with patients, what I realized was that uh, their health outcomes depended a lot on what they did at home or outside the four walls of a clinic. And Mm -hmm. as a physician, especially a young one, I had very limited ability and tools to influence their choices outside the hospital. Uh, And then later in my career, when I was uh, running clinical trials, I had the opportunity to interact with uh, consultants who are treating patients living living with HIV. Uh, and a lot of them told me that, man, it's fantastic that, you know, companies are coming out with drugs. But what we also need is a way to influence our patients and get them to comply with medications and live a healthier life. And we can't do that today. And so at that time, along with a colleague of mine, Uh, we decided to start what you today call a digital therapeutic, which was using an interactive voice response system to educate the patients about what is good quality of care when it comes to Mm -hmm. HIV, remind them about their medication, and also importantly, for any sort of issues that they had during uh, during taking these medications, they could call into a toll-free number and the system would essentially guide them guide them through a sequence of questions and then give them advice saying that, you know, stop the medication, take this over-the-counter drug, or you don't have to worry, you can just continue with the medication. So <clears throat> that was, I would say, my first experience with digital health. And that was the first time when I saw the potential of what health technology or digital technology could do for healthcare delivery Uh, and then uh, moved to a big pharma where I led a team that built digital products for cardiology and for obesity and during that experience what I realized is that the way we develop products in digital is very different from the analog world in a in a Mm. drug you take you know eight to ten years to bring the drug to the market and once you have the molecule it essentially stays the same you know the molecule fundamentally doesn't change but that's not how software product is developed you you get the first version out which should be good and then you learn from it and you iterate and you 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 get better over time Mm -hmm. 
But unfortunately, the, the model of building digital health products was very onerous. It would take 12 months, sometimes 18 months to come up with the first version of the product. And I did. I felt at that time that there was a better way to do this. Uh, so at Avgen, what we have taken, the, the, the approach that we've taken is the platform approach. So rather mm. than trying to build a product for a specific indication, what we've tried to do is identify what are the common building blocks of a digital product. So for example, we need the ability to educate a patient. That's common across most digital health products. So we have tried to sort of build these Think of it like Lego blocks. We build these Lego blocks, and then whenever we, uh, whenever we look at a different sort of indication, we are able to quickly deploy a digital health product which is safe, which is secure, and which is impactful. So we are trying to reduce the time to build digital health product, going from months now to potentially potentially weeks. And today, I think we've built around. On our platform, we have around 12 different digital health products. And across mm -hmm. all of them, we probably have more than 1.5 million people who have download, downloaded these products. So so that's the that's the story from beginning to now. No, definitely. Amazing. We're going to take apart the story um, in different aspects. Tell us about the, the experience or the, the change in dynamic when you're a clinician and then you go work for this big pharma company. Because obviously, mm -hmm. they have different agendas and different goals, as you can imagine, to a clinician. Tell us about that transition. Absolutely. I think when I was working as a clinician, there was definitely a lot of suspicion about big pharma. Yeah. Like, and in, in some way, I think when I decided to move out of clinic, clinical practice and into pharma, some of my seniors at that time, oh, you're going over to the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. I would say that was probably the the trending topic when I decided to switch 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 careers. But I do believe that that experience in pharma has been invaluable in mm. what I do today. Because I think what I learned in big pharma is how do you act how does one look at what is what are the major sort of unmet needs in the healthcare ecosystem and then how does one develop a product that addresses these these needs because at the end of the day you know we can all come up with ideas but the the, the ideas that have an impact are the ones that scale and mm. what 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 i really learned in pharma is all about the business of healthcare not just from a mm. commercial perspective but also from a development perspective, regulatory perspective, compliance perspective. So it, it made me much more suitable to doing what I'm doing today. I think without that experience in pharma, I, I, I think it would be it would have been much harder, harder for me. Nine, are you able to um, tell us a little bit about because a lot of our listeners, right, they'll have healthcare related products and ideas in their minds. And none of our previous guests, we've never really been able to dive uh, dive into the regulatory sort of legal aspect of these things. Are you able to just sort of break down some of the key sort of stumbling blocks when it comes to building a healthcare related product and thinking about information governance yeah. or uh, sort of what it's classified as? I think when we look at regulatory, regulatory is used as a catch-all phrase. And, but it, if you break it down, it covers a lot of things. So one, you have data privacy, right? So that's mm -hmm. the information governance piece. Then you have medical device classification, 
So that's the, that's the second piece. And then the third piece, you actually have also post-marketing surveillance. So the safety aspects of the of the product. So broadly, I think those are the three. If you if you go from regulatory, I think you need to look at information governance. Mm. You need to you need to look at what is your device classification strategy, and then you need to look at once it is in the market, what is your post-marketing support or surveillance that that one needs to do. And I, I just for this discussion, let's keep data privacy aside for a bit. Mm. When you just look at medical device classification and post-marketing, it comes down to what is it that you want to claim or what is it as a company you claim that your product will do. Now, if you claim that what your product does is support patients, right? It could be, for example, you know, some of the products in the market, which are more, more in the health, health and wellness space, they're not claiming that this is a treatment or this is a preventive tool or this is a diagnostic tool. Mm. In those instances, they will not get classified as a medical device because as a manufacturer of that medical device, of that product, you're not claiming that this is a treatment diagnosis or prevention. So the intended use, that's, mm. that's critical. Now, if your intended use is one of these, like diagnosis, prevention, or treatment, then most likely it will get classified as a medical device. It will be a medical device. Then mm. the question is that, is it a class one, class four, or class two medical device? And there, what you have to look at is, what is the risk profile of your, of your product? So if it is low, then it is generally class one. And then if it is high, where there's a risk of death, then that becomes class three. So I think when we are looking at developing products i think the, the 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 two key things to assess is what is the intended use that you that you want to claim as a manufacturer and the second one is what is the safety profile of the drug and that will influence influences influences strategy and mm. now just closing in on closing up on the data data side of it that's that's an entirely different stream where one has to look at you know are you a data processor are you a data collector what are what are your uh, compliance requirements from a from a country perspective do you have to hold mm. the data locally do you, can you hold the data in a different country so that's that i would say is the other aspect mm. that a, a startup or a manufacturing company needs to pay attention to but those are they end up getting classified as regulatory but those, those, are, those are actually two very very different very very different things you, you broke it down well um the the question i had i wanted to ask was what kind of triggered the jump i know you talked about it into kind of digital health and avigen um and tell us about you know ams is a big kind of this the, the zero to one the early days of avigen i know you have more than one million downloads loads of people using multiple different countries actually i know in the beginning it was like this tell us about those early days you know the early days i think the, i would say the first year probably was the hardest <laughs> year because when you start you you just have an idea, right? And in our case, the first idea that we had actually did not work at all. And it took us three years to realize that, oh, you know, this this idea is not going to go anywhere. And I think the, it was probably the third or the fourth year when we realized that, you know, through the failure of our first idea, we had a we had an asset that was becoming that could become extremely relevant and extremely impactful. Um, we also had the added challenge that we were, when we when we were founded, we were founded in two locations. So we had an, a company in UK and a company in India. 
So when the founders were split across two countries, it was actually quite hard to one raise funding. And the second one also for us as a founding team to find our chemistry because mm. distance plays a big role, time zone plays a big role. And when we started back in 2015, it was not that easy to, I mean, you could call, but it was very expensive. Now, <laughs> nowadays, you know, I, we can pick up a quality and it's, you yeah. literally pay for data or you don't even pay for that now. So when we started, I think it was much harder to stay on the same page, much harder to resolve conflicts. Mm. Uh, and, and, and yeah, so in some way, I think we learned a lot through that, through that experience and through the challenges that were thrown at us. And what was, what for me, the big learning is the, the key thing in the early days, I know it sounds very cliched, but as founders to be aligned in terms of what you're trying to build, not mm. in terms of the product itself, but as a company, are you trying to build a lifestyle business? Are you trying to build a scalable business? Are you trying to, you know, the, getting that lined up, it's hard because it takes a lot of conversations and some really difficult conversations, but I wish that we had actually spent a little bit more time aligning as founders on what we are trying to build as an organization, if you see what I mean. Hmm. Just going back to, there's a lot of questions that came up that I didn't plan to ask, but now I want to ask is, Tell us um, a bit more about how you managed to get over this founder conflict, how you managed to work in two different time zones to where you are now, um, the first question. Um, and the second question is, tell us a bit more about when you started to know something is going wrong. Because I know we have a lot of health tech founders and entrepreneurs. You're building something for three years. In, in the world of business, you know, that's a long, long time. So... How you do with founder conflict and got together and what were the signs of realizing your product is failing and you need to iterate or move on? Sure. So I think the way we got through those conflict and we only partly succeeded because when we started, I think we were actually four of us. And then hmm. it ended up that we, the two of us bought out the other two co-founders. So I, I would say the uh, it, it, it worked out for both parties. I think today both the companies are doing well. But in terms of, I think, conflict resolution, constant communication, and even to this day, like every morning, I, I speak to Neeraj, who's, who's my co-founder, every morning. And mm. sometimes I think, I'm like, oh, there's not much to talk today. <laughs> but when we when we talk, we end up speaking for like 30, 45 minutes, and there's always things to talk about. So it's become a pattern with us that every morning, you know, we speak for 30 to 45 minutes about everything that's happening in the company, things that are that are on top of his mind, on top of my mind. So I, I think the, the key, th that was a key change. Like previously we would catch up, you know, once in two days or once in three days, and it just isn't enough. Mm -hmm. Agenda-less conversations, are I think how relationships get get built. That's the first one. And the second one is we really pushed ourselves to write down what is important to us. Like, you know, what is important to us as individuals? Like for us, it's very important that we are a, we, we are a performance oriented company. At the same time, we are a company that actually employees come, they learn, they grow as individuals. So we want to give opportunities for people who have been 
inside the company first so that they can they can stretch their legs and see you know see and evolve as evolve as people so we really pushed ourselves to write these things down which which mm. are important to us and then when you exchange it we realize that we are actually more aligned in terms of where we want the company to go to and how we want the company to evolve so in some sense sometimes if i'm faced with a situation i generally have a sense of what neeraj's opinion will be and i'm sure it is vice versa and i think that has come through constant communication and really forcing ourselves to articulate articulate our thoughts you know some of these thoughts we assume that the other person knows but it it's most most of the times it's not the not the case so i think really articulating that and speaking it out and sometimes you know when you are with the third party they can sometimes ask you those questions ask you that open ended questions which forces both the founders to really 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 come quote unquote come clean on mm. what matters to them so that's how i think how we got through that initial initial phase um in terms of your second question on what are the early signs that a product is not working hindsight is obviously always 2020 um the first thing i think is the the you one has to get traction right and or one has to build momentum now that traction could be based on number of users or listeners end users it could that, that's one the second one obviously is you know what y combinator has made very popular is doubling revenue growth i think every <laughs> two weeks or something like that but it fundamentally it's about traction you know are you building traction have you have you have you in terms of identifiable numbers have you gone from say 1 to 2 that could be user numbers that could be that could be revenue that's the second one the third i think leading indicator is that when from a from a financial perspective when you when you realize that the cost of selling not not what you're selling it for the cost of selling what your product is if 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 that is significantly higher you know if it is high that's a big sign because what that means is that when you're going out to your customer group getting one customer is actually costing you a lot more than what you could charge that customer mm-hmm. in our instance that's what it took us a while to figure out that even though we technically had a large accessible market the cost of getting one customer was so high that there was no way this comp- this that product would would scale or that service would would scale mm. and it i mean it's it's hindsight now but at some point of time the penny dropped saying that there's no way this is going to become a meaningful meaningful business it could be an interesting business but definitely not mm. a meaningful meaningful business um nayan so you could frame right the first product as it failed right but you can also frame it as that you took away some key lessons that then sort of informed you and taught you a lot for your second product right so if you were to look back now again retrospectively looking what are some key lessons that you learned that then really sort of propelled you in your second product yeah so it's a very good question um in terms of i think the key lesson today what our platform is 
it has its origination in the first idea that we tried because mm. we needed a platform to support the service that 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 we had launched and today i'm sure there is code in the platform that was written 8 years back oh, wow. 100% right but the lesson i think that we learned and this i i, I can't i can't say that this is something that i figured out but i think this all credit goes to neeraj i think neer what neeraj had realized because he had he also has more experience this is his second time as an entrepreneur and he he had worked with a lot of startups before in his in his previous startup and what he had realized is that products fail but platforms don't fail generally mm-hmm. right? mm-hmm. a product can fail but a platform has a higher likelihood of success so when he initially was building the platform he always had that mindset he's like whatever i build today even if this idea doesn't work we should be able to use this in a in a different product mix and because of that even though those 3 years in some sense we could say was a write off it wasn't a write off because the nucleus of what we have today was done in those in those in those first mm. 3 years so i think as founders i think it's, it's it's important to yes you have an idea today but it is important to see can you build assets that even if your idea today is not working out it could be the starting off point or a jumping off point for your next idea and now take us on to sort of talk to us about the second the third product that you've built how do you go so you've talked about 0 to 1 great it's it's been challenging you've had a few failures you've taken lessons fo- forward right how do you now go from one to several how do you scale this now that's that's what we are learning now and in some sense i think as ceos and founders you end up reinventing yourself you have to because mm-hmm. what worked for 0 to 1 is not something that could work for 1 to 100 i think when mm-hmm. you're switching to 1 to 100 as founders and as ceo the the key change is that you need to bring on board people who are better at a particular function right in in the zero to one as founders you end up doing everything you end up doing uh, the conceptualization the <laughs> early marketing getting the first bundle, everything building everything, <laughs> everything like what you guys are doing today um but once you reach a point where you have you've sort of established okay this is what we want to scale it it then all becomes about can you attract the right people into the business right who are who are who are, who are experts at what they do are you able to support them both philosophically and financially to execute on their plans are you able to hold them accountable for what is what is what what, what needs to be delivered so i think in that 1 to 100 it as founders the the key differentiator will be one's ability to attract retain and manage people who are more specialized in a particular particular activity and mm-hmm. what what our role as ceos and founders become is we become storytellers I mean, what i'm doing today right you know <laughs> most of my job will be about telling the story like what is arjun what does arjun want to achieve where does arjun want to be right mm-hmm. that, that's that it becomes a bigger and bigger part of what you spend spend your time on so hmm amazing amazing then um, you're the you're the second founder that said once you get product market fit growing and scaling companies about recruiting the right talent and retaining the talent 
um, and the role of the founder and the CEO changes. So it's, it's very interesting to see two successful companies saying more or less the same thing. I wanted to talk a bit more about Avagen. So I'm alright in understanding, like you described, it's a, a platform which is kind of like, I think one of the, the popular ones is the health machine where you can build on it and use it for separate, I think you're disease agnostic, right? Um, tell us a bit more about the, the, the pilot you did at King's College Hospital. The reason I'm asking is obviously me and Amzui studied and was at King's College London anyway, so it's obviously close to our heart. But tell us the start to finish, because people are very interested in who came with the idea, did they come to you, did you approach them, how it worked, how you deployed and so on. Yeah, absolutely. So, so before I touch upon that, I think what Health Machine is trying to do is trying to make it easier to deploy digital health products. A mm-hmm. little bit like, you know, what uh, e- uh, Shopify did for e-commerce, right? Tomorrow, mm-hmm. if you want to open an e-commerce store, you go to Shopify and you set up your store. People rarely build their own e-commerce stores now. So mm-hmm. that's what we're trying to do uh, for digital health uh, health products with Health Machine. So what happened with King's College was that I knew the professor from some of pre- some of the previous work that I had done with uh, with King's College around digital, and she had done uh, initial sort of proof of concept for a treatment for paranoia, and it was done using some off the shelf software which was on a on on a desktop. And uh, she was very she she was very optimistic about the intervention because. It was a slightly different modality uh, and she'd done a lot of work in that space. So we ended up, you know, connecting over how digital could be used to launch this product for treating paranoia. Um, so I, I would say she she's the scientific expert and the brains behind the concept. Mm-hmm. And what I and Avjan brought to the table was the technology expertise, the platform and probably some of the commercial expertise that is required to make these make make these sort of products successful. Um, the way it worked is that uh, we worked with her very closely on applying for an NIHR grant. Mm-hmm. And we were able to pretty much mock up a whole product, which uh, she was able to include with her, with her application. So that I think really brought the product to life for the reviewers. And she was able to secure a fairly sizable a grant from NIHR and then uh, after a procurement process we we were selected to set up the product on health machine and through that we realized that we also had to get MHRA approval which was a new thing for them new thing for us uh, so in, there was a bit of a blip in the beginning because it was uncharted territory for for everyone uh, and then we got the approval, I think around this time last year. So it's probably been just about a year or just coming up to a year. And then now the clinical trial is ongoing. We just sent an interim report. And hopefully if the if the product is successful, then we will be able to launch the product in the market um, on a commercial basis. So mm-hmm. that's how that's how it, it has worked. And it is quite novel because paranoia is a fairly common symptom in psychosis and currently just from a capacity perspective, the healthcare providers are not able to sometimes support these patients. So hopefully for uh, people with mild paranoia, this could become a modality of treatment um, mm. versus you know going to a going to a clinic to get um, get get therapy sessions. I'm 
very excited and i think jenny who's a clinician has been phenomenal to phenomenal to work with because she truly understands how digital can be used to deliver interventions at scale just to dive into that sort of initial phase right so say someone comes to you with an idea i've got an idea an opportunity i've got some insight right and they want your consult what are the first three questions that you ask them from your sort of tech problem solving background excellent question i think <clears throat> the the first one that we generally ask is what is the intended use so mm. is it a is it a treatment or is it more around support so that's the first question what is the intended use the the second question for us is that what exactly is the intervention right is it is it is it cognitive behavioral therapy is mm. it um, you know tracking things like that so what is the mechanism of action what exactly is the intervention that's the second one and the third one that we are really what is important for us is that what is their mid term to long term plan mm. and it could be that you know a researcher will come to and says i think this is a product that i want to research and the end game is having publications or you know presentations at a conference that could be one very valid sort of end end game the second one could be that we want to use this as a as a value added service for our patients which is generally what pharmaceutical companies come to us with or the third one could be that you know i want to launch this product because i believe that there is a there's a need for this mark for this product in the market so the the, the third question is probably the answer to the third question is probably the most important one for us mm. because we 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 don't want to end up working with people who are just trying this for a you know let's just try what happens because then nothing happens and we all mm. spend a lot of time and effort mm. essentially achieving nothing so so for me i think work having i we want to work with people who have a mid term to long term vision for yeah. for the digital health product because if 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 the product succeeds then all of us succeed you know yeah. we just don't want to just try it and you know if if the commitment is not there to the product mm. or to the idea then it's not the right partner for us so. mm. yeah no absolutely a follow on question i had and the way you described it is very good i'm thinking i will title the podcast like this as though well. you're building the shopify for digital health products right. what we've seen more recently um is a lot of people are bringing in a lot of stuff in house they're building the tech they're building it within themselves within the company um uh, what how do you go and attract other people or convince them to a certain degree to build on health machine to build with avgen rather than saying hey we've got some fundraising or we've got some sort of funding we're going to get our own developer or some sort of freelancer what's what are you offering as as a, as a, as a company to these individuals very good question so and you're absolutely right that there are companies who are trying to bring this in house and i would say by default most startups actually try and do this do this in house now mm. the the difference is if you if you go back say 10 years right when aws was sort of coming to place every software company used to host their own servers mm. that was default like you would never go cloud today i don't think anybody does local no who does local nobody everybody is either on aws azure or 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 google um so we are probably at the leading edge of that right where 
today people want to build it in house when they realize that it it takes them 12 12 months sometimes millions right and the product that they, they that they get they're like oh this is not what i actually asked for <laughs> and then they're back to square one some of them are i think i'm not saying it's it's always the case but it happens more often than we think mm. it, it happens right so working with us one we have a platform which is scaled we can support products in europe in north america in asia right now for anyone else it's going to be very hard to get to that level of maturity in the platform in a short span of time so one is that mm. first the second thing is time to market because at the end of the day in in software it's about can you quickly get your product into the hands of your end users because that's when you learn if you have traction or if you don't have traction going back to what we said earlier right and you could save years right mm. by just getting your hands into the end of the year and if it doesn't work great you know wash your hands off move on to the next one so i think working with avgen and health machine that's what that's what we bring to the table some people get it some people don't but i think over time if you look at most industries right they all end up adopting a platform i mean look at look at us now right you have adopted a platform to do your podcast mm. 5 years back that is not how it this would have been done mm. so eventually i think most industries end up having a leading platform and our ambition is that health machine becomes the platform if not one of the platforms if not the platform that people say i have an idea for a digital health solution let me let me build it on health machine and host it on health machine hmm no i think um, the analogy gave makes complete sense the aws analogy the, the switch from local to aws azure and i think because of the rapid innovation the rapid roller of digital health products you need a platform like health machine to get it out there to test it to get that traction to then take it to the next level Absolutely. like you said we've built products in the past ourselves and it takes forever and the advantage you have is not only speed it's the experience of three or four existing products in the market and you can already speak to founders like hey we know you want to do this but for my experience you should do it like this and so on And the and question sometimes, yeah. sometimes it's not just experience right it's also data like we yeah. can literally show data saying that okay you know you want this super cool ui ux we will we have tried it this is what <laughs> the drop off rate is if you still want to do it you know we'll consider it but like i keep telling some of our customers i'm like what we have learned over time is based on experience and data mm. we think this is the minimum that you need subtracting mm. from this you really really need to convince us that this is not the bare minimum that you require addition yeah. maybe but subtracting it, it's 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 hard learned lessons yeah and that's the that's the advantage like we can actually advise them on what works what doesn't work not just based on our instinct but based on you know the, the data. data that we've seen from end users hmm. and i think that success compounds and and the following question is how do you meet in the middle because right. at the end of the day even for a business model they are you're offering a service and they want to perhaps purchase it or they want to do something that you test the hypothesis theory or some sort of product how do you meet in the middle where you agree and you can kind of convey that data convey that experience to the client in terms of the product they want to build yeah so what we do is that we have what is called like a starter 
starter app, it, it's a little bit like a theme, right? On like a website theme. There are parts of it that can be configured, uploaded, you know, colors can be changed, content can be uploaded. And then what the what the you what the what our clients bring in is the unique insight that they have for mm. a specific disease area. So for example, for one of our uh, customers, they are interested in launching a digital health product for digestive health. Now the unique insight that they brought in based on their user research is that the users want to know what are the what are the food that actually triggers their diarrhea. That's the that's the tent pole feature that their mm. users want, right? So that will essentially be like a custom module that only their product will have. So it's a bit like you know you have the you have the basic version of the car, and then the the add-ons which make the car uniquely yours mm. is what what the what our customers customers bring. So that's how we we meet we meet in the middle because mm. in our absence, what they would do is that they would end up building rebuilding a lot of things like an authentication module, yeah, uh, a database layer, uh, a visualization layer. So all of that is just out of the box. What they add is that you know that extra bit which mm. only they know. Like for example, in the King's College, they know the disease area. They know what what is the intervention that they have to do to to help uh, treat the patients. We don't, right? So that's where we meet. That's where we meet in the middle. Hmm. No, definitely. It's, it's, it, in a sense, it's very smart. It's a it's a genius way of doing things. And I'm thinking in the, in the future, many clinicians they don't want to go and start up uh, own startup or a spin out all their headache and the. the they want to have existing platforms and the way you described it is, is it's amazing and in, yeah. in my in my worldview um, realistically or unrealistically to uh, if we get to a stage where a clinician can say hey this nine needs this product in which we need you know a module which will teach him about good nutrition mm. how to become fitter you know how to manage his emotional health he needs to be able to track his blood pressure and say uh, i'm just making this up like you know how many times he sneezes in a day and then essentially there is a bespoke app for that for that patient i mean that's that's taking it to the limit right Mm. and it's it's a whole long tail strategy so Mm. if if we can enable that even come halfway there then i Mm. think we probably have digital products that 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 people use because you know it actually supports them in their healthcare journey mm-hmm. and so that's my unrealistic uh... so nayan i want to now dive into yourself as a person right so we've talked about regulations product mm-hmm. zero to one one to a hundred right tell me about you so from clinician to all of this right as an entrepreneur the highs the lows right what drives you why why have you traded like the stable career of being a clinician where everything is stable, the mortgage comes in, the income comes in, to being an entrepreneur. Tell us what drives you. Over the years, what I've learned about myself is that I don't do well when the when the when what to do has already been decided, if you see what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. like I think the the job that I that I really did not like was a, a global PM role where the SOPs were all well written, you know, the the forms that needed to be complete was all there. And I did well because I have a reasonable amount of intelligence, but I did not enjoy it because the path mm. was clearly laid out. I just had to be good at following the path. 
I think what 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 really energizes me is that when things are unknown, like where I have to figure out okay what the path is. And over the years, I think what I have matured into is that I've realized that some of the some of this I can't do on my own, and I need to work with people who who have the intelligence, the technical ability to find the path together. So mm. uh, that's I think one of the reasons I. Um, I have kept reinventing myself because once you sort of have figured it out, then I'm like, okay, so what's next? What is the next thing that I need to figure out? And thankfully, I think my wife has been supportive. Um, if if she had said, oh, you know, why are you lo- leaving this corporate high-flying <laughs> job and I don't want to like compromise, then I it it would be out of the question mm. um but she's been always been very supportive that you know she's not she's not tried to make me someone that i'm not so mm. supporting that i think has has been has been very important i think as founders i i think over the years i've realized that that's very important if your partner is not supportive of of your journey then it it it, it becomes too much right because you're you're fighting it at home you're fighting fighting at work and it doesn't work so i think it's very important to have the right partner in life so absolutely and you use the word reinvent reinventing quite a lot so our listeners will be doctors one should dabble in different areas right if someone is thinking of reinventing themselves discovering new skills new passions give them three tips what three tips would you give for someone to start to rediscover themselves and reinvent themselves i think the first one which i think doctors by by just by our training have is that we are like yes we think this is how a patient will respond but sometimes it doesn't work out that way so fundamentally our training helps us prepare for the for the un, for unpredictability right we just have the skill sets right we think in a structured way we're trained in a particular way to handle things that we cannot predict is going to happen. So that I think mm. is a big advantage that clinicians have. And I've learned it now more than ever that, you know, nothing phases me because there's nothing as stressful as, you know, having a bleeder and trying to figure out where the bleeder is and that you just have to <laughs> get it sorted. Right. So, so I think we are, I think med- clinicians are very well equipped to handle the rigors of rigors of entrepreneurship. So that's, that's the first tip. I don't think we should, uh, underestimate how much of an advantage it is for clinicians who are taking the entrepreneurial journey. That's the first one. The second one, I think, um, is to, to stay committed because like, for me, I can't believe it's been eight years that I've been at this. And as long as you are, you're, you know that you're making progress towards building something that you want to build, I think staying committed to that journey, I think, mm-hmm. is, is very important. And the third one, and I, I say reinvention, but the third one is fully committing to committing to it because as clinicians, I think that's the other, I do not know if it's an advantage or a disadvantage. You know, we could do clinic one day a week, then we could do like a startup some other day a week. We could consult for a company. So we have options, right? We mm. all have a lot of options. But sometimes to do something meaningful, you have to commit to a particular thing for a reasonable mm-hmm. amount of time. So I think the third one is 
you know, commit. Like it could be for six months, it could be for a year, but commit because even if it doesn't work, you can always go back and practice. I mean, it, it, I mean as long as you keep your license updated, you, know, you can always go back. So the cost of failure is very, very low for doctors. So I, I do think that clinicians are very well equipped and maybe the bonus one is get familiar with the business. Um, mm. it's not rocket science. It just takes a little bit of effort to understand, you know, financial model, understand marketing, but at least get some awareness so that you don't, at least, you know, when somebody is telling you real stuff and somebody who's trying to take you for a ride. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) no, absolutely. No, thank you so much for that. Um, and my last question that I have for you is that when you are, so say, as you've done before, right, you were a clinician before, you went into pharma and everything else. A lot of it involved learning. A lot of it involved learning, right? How do you learn best? What resources do you pull on? Um, how do you develop new skills when it comes to, because entrepreneurship involves learning new things every single day, pretty much. So how do you learn? Two things. One, I think I learn from other, other individuals. So I, over the years, I have establish good relationships with people from different um, sectors. So, you know, I know a couple of friends who who are VCs. I know a couple of friends who are technologists. I know a couple of friends who are marketeers. So whenever I'm faced with a question that I do not know the answer to, I feel like in my network of contacts, there was someone who will Hmm. know the answer or who will at least give me an opportunity to, to discuss it through and then we can come up, come up with the, come up with the, um, come up with the solution. So I think that's how that's one. The second thing that I've done, I've recently started doing, it's probably been a year, year and a half where every major decision that I take, I try to write it down and mm-hmm. keep a record of it. And then once in a while I'll go back and then I'll color code them, you know, oh, this decision worked out well, this, mm-mm. Mm-hmm. And this really did not work out well (laughs) and sort of understand what was I thinking when I did these decisions and what were the assumptions that I had made, which worked out and the the ones that did not work out. And then, you know, hopefully the next time I take the decisions, my decision-making muscle Mm. is actually stronger because I've reflected on what, what went well and what did not go well. And sometimes it's not so much the decisions, right? It's the assumptions that you've made to arrive at a decision that you have to revisit. So that's, I think those are the two ways I think that I have, I have tried to stay ahead in terms of, in terms of the growth of Avgens. Building that decision muscle, the, and I know, and I know some people call, I've read it a few times is they, they try to find, fine tune their gut instinct. Yeah. They try to figure out what did they do in that moment in time that made to a certain positive outcome, what they did to a negative outcome. And I think it's true. You probably can figure it out or at least strengthen it, uh, which is very interesting you, you, you said, um, because sometimes clinicians or sometimes startups, especially in digital health, they're very data-driven rather than the assumptions in that moment in time making a positive outcome-led decision. Um, the, the last question I have from, from me is, You've done incredibly well. You've you've learned a lot of lessons. What does the future hold for Avgen? What are you looking to achieve in the next eight years? Um, let's say. So I think in the next year, eight years, at the end of eight years, for me, if we become recognized as a global, a leading global player when it comes to mm-hmm. digital health solutions, th- that is what I am 
aiming I'm aiming for. That's the first one. The second one is the company getting maybe even not even eight years, maybe even in the next three to four years, the company getting to a stage where it is, where it does not, where it does not require the founders. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it's because Neeraj and I are like tired, not at all to the contrary, because if a company is dependent for its growth on founders, that means the founders haven't done a good job, right? Mm. Because if you look at all the successful companies that we know around you, even if the founder leaves, the companies continue to grow and grow for decades. Yeah. I mean, hundreds of years, companies grow, they become a entity in itself. And mm. I think as founders, I think we should aspire to build companies like that, that, that go beyond us. And so for me, I think if Avgen even is even halfway to, towards that, where, you know, somebody else, the next crop of people come in and can grow, continue to grow the company and attract people, Avgen attracts people to join, that I think for me will be a phenomenal, phenomenal success. No, that, that's incredible. And the way you're describing it and your vision, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see in a few years if it's like, you know, there's, there's no code tools, you know, like Webflow and Squarespace, you go to the health machine and you can just drag and drop all these diseases and all these different regulations and DTAC and all these wonderful things they do nowadays and then deploy, right? Absolutely. So um, <laughs> that would be very cool and fun to see. Absolutely. Cross fingers. So that's what we are trying. I think we're trying to get to that. Yeah, of course. A little bit like, you know, when you're ordering a car, right? You just yeah. it's like, oh, I want this, I want this, I want this. And voila, that's, that's, yeah. what, you, that's what you'll get at the end. <laughs> so let, let, let's see what, what the future holds. But you're, you're very well on that journey and on that path. Thank Once you. again, I want to thank you, Nan, for taking the time out, um, for sharing this journey. We, I think you're one of the first guests that is doing something slightly different in terms of digital health, um, you know, the Shopify experience per se. Um, and just sharing your your a bit of honesty in terms of your conflict, the early days is is very um, heartening for us actually and our listeners. Oh, thank you, Abdul. Thank you, Amza. I also enjoyed the conversations. It was good questions. And yeah. All the very best to you guys also. No worries. Thank, thank you, you. No, and thank you to our listeners.